Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'd like to welcome you to the next episode of Exponential Wisdom and one of the most enjoyable two hours of my quarter getting to talk with Peter. Uh, you know, Peter, I just want to say something before you come in, and that is that we have this passionate interest in sort of technology and abundance, but we really vary because I have some interest, and one of them is politics, and that, that's not one that you necessarily share with me, but I, I look at it as a particular part of the world is either good or bad for a technological advance, depending on what the politics are. So I've always taken a look at it from that direction. Well, it's a good thing that you enjoy politics and have the time for it because <laughs> this subject is one on politics, on Brexit in particular. Yes. You know, up until a few weeks ago, I had to ask, what the hell does Brexit stand for? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, I it's just know. a combination of the word Britain and exit. And the exit was from the European Union, which is a very interesting organization. And just about a minute of background on it, Peter. You know, Europe went through two nightmares in the 20th century with the First and Second World War. So coming out of the Second World War, all the countries in the western part of Europe, which were not under the control of the Soviet Union, got together and they said, look, we can't keep going like this and having these suicidal wars that we've been having. So they said, you know, we have to start cooperating rather than so much military competing with each other. And so what came together in the 1950s was some trade agreements, and it was on cement and steel. It actually started off with just agreements because steel and cement were very necessary for the rebuilding of Europe. Hmm. So they just hit on two things that all the countries had a vital interest in. And that progressed through the 50s and 60s right up until the late 80s where it became a common market where they dropped trade barriers. Very, very useful. It's what the United States has had right from the beginning. Just as a side note, I live in Canada and have for 45 years, and we have our company in Great Britain. And people are always talking about the United States as it's a single thing. And I said, you know, it's actually 50 countries. (laughs) I said, and you know the difference when you've gone from one state to the next. But I said, it's 50 states with probably the best trade group in the world. They don't have any barriers between states in terms of trade barriers and everything, and that's what makes it work. Well, the Europeans wanted that for themselves. You know, they wanted Germany and France and Italy and Spain and all the other countries, which had tremendous barriers between trade. And that was beautiful. England, at a certain point, was asked to join, and they joined. And England always plays a special part because it was always a global country. So this island that sat off the northwest coast of Europe was actually the most globally connected of all the European countries because being an island, they had to depend upon their merchant fleet and their naval fleet to have an impact in the world. And the British just went all around the world and they created countries, United States being one of them and Canada being another, Australia, New Zealand. And they now have a thing called the British Commonwealth, which has 53 countries in it. Most English-speaking countries, with the exception of the United States and Ireland. So Europe always had this outward look And then there was a sleight of hand, and the only way I can really describe it is as a sleight of hand. This was something that was foisted on the European countries with no democratic, what I would say, participation in this whatsoever. 
there grew a bureaucracy over the trade union and it became a political entity which was called the European Union. So there was the European common market which really worked and then there was the European Union and the thing they did is they tried to change the currency and the currency switched over. You wouldn't have French francs, you wouldn't have Deutschmarks, you wouldn't have Lira. You would have a single currency called the Euro which favored some of the European countries and actually penalized some of the other countries. When you're asked to give up your currency, you're giving up an enormous amount of the control that you have over your economy. And so not everybody did this. The Swiss have never done it, even though they participate in a lot of it. But the British kept the pound, so they didn't go into this. And then they started noticing this political unit, the European Union, which was headquarters in Brussels, started giving rules for all the countries on how much crops they could grow, how many fish they could fish. And instead of allowing the market to determine... Centralized communist government. <laughs> yeah, it's it was like creeping communism. You know, it was very subtle and it was never talked. But the people who actually ran this, no one knows how they are really appointed. They have meetings that are in secret. Their rules are binding. There's no comeback on the rules. They have a parliament, but nobody can initiate legislation. And the British, who have this long tradition of self-rule and parliamentary government, they benefited from it because they still had the common market, but more and more the burden of the political unit became more onerous than the gains were for the common market. So finally, two years ago, the prime minister actually to nip a independence movement in the bud said, look, I'll tell you this, that after the next general election, we'll have a referendum. And he did it in an afternoon and he didn't really consult with anyone. But it was publicized, it was in the papers and everything else. And he was very worried about how the next election would go. And so he had this as sort of a promise to get votes. As it turns out, he won an overwhelming majority last year, and then he was caught with his promise, so he had to follow through with his referendum. And a referendum, you know, we don't have many of them in the states. I remember California has referendums, but a lot of states don't have. And this, everybody votes on an issue, and the issue here was, do we stay inside the European Union or do we leave? Well, 17.5 voted to leave and 16 million voted to stay. It was very concentrated votes for the remain. So London wanted to remain because they're the big city in Europe. They're the financial center. I mean, London is just one of the great cities in the world. There's about four or five great cities and London is one of them. And they couldn't see any reason to get out. But the rest of England, pretty well outside of London, Wales, which is part of the UK, voted to get out, Northern Ireland, Scotland, voted to stay in. I have about 250 British clients in Strategic Coach, and it was about 80% leave for my clients and 20% stay. My niece is a law student in the UK, and she was saying that the youth wanted to stay. Yeah. What's that about? Well, they're given everything for free. They get massive amounts of free stuff. You know, it's uh, young people like the Department of Free Stuff. <laughs> You're always a socialist until you have to meet your first payroll. Interesting. Churchill has this great line, anybody who's not a socialist at 20 has no heart. Anybody who's still a socialist at 40 has no brain. <laughs> the thing is that 
First of all, the educational system of Britain was totally 100% pro-EU. So all the teachers and everybody that these kids had had from the very first grade was all EU, EU, EU. Countries don't matter. Borders don't matter. Eventually, we're going to get rid of all the borders. There'll just be Europeans. But it's kind of funny, Peter, because I've never met anybody who called themselves a European who said they lived in Europe. They were British. They lived in England. They were French. They lived in Paris. They were German. They lived in Berlin. So I've got a thesis of why the EU isn't going to last. It's actually going to disappear. And this was just the first blow. What I think, Peter, and this is your thesis more than anyone else's, is that technology is going global. So what we have is this huge, never-ending expansion of technological networks, the cell phone network being the most obvious one. In a matter of just a few years, we'll have internet use everywhere on the planet. I mean, with the satellite systems that the various high-tech companies are planning, you'll have to want to not use your cell phone to be out of cell phone range. I mean, you'll have to turn it off. So technology is globalizing. Science is globalizing. Economics is globalizing. And my theory is one of the impacts, you lose local identity. So there's a countervailing movement as what I call the accelerators, which are finance, technology, and science. As they accelerate and globalize, there is a counter movement which consists of local communities, family life, religion, Mm. and local politics, which will localize, and people want to hang on to their local identity. What gets caught in the middle are these quasi-governmental organizations in the middle which don't have any local identity. There's nobody really knows what they do, but they can't keep up with the technological expansion. So the bureaucrats in Brussels are as much out of the loop as everybody else about technology. They're resisting technology. I mean, the instance of Uber being banned or suppressed in (laughs) Europe and governments going after Facebook, governments going after Google and everything else, you know, they're not okay with all this American technology coming over there. But at the same time, they would like to take away people's local identity. They don't want people to have access to the latest technology, but at the same time, they do want to take away your local identity. So the identity movement is very, very strong. I expect that Europe is going to return back to borders because of the unlimited migration that's going on from North Africa and from the Middle East right now. Which is just beginning. Yeah, Yeah, it's just beginning. If you don't have control over migration, people are telling you how to run your economy, you have no independence. And my feeling is that you're going to have these twin movements of globalization at the top level and localization at the bottom level. And these are two powerful forces. So that's what I see. And Brexit's just an example of that. So let me reflect on some of the things that you brought up. Again, I know very little about Brexit other Mm -hmm. than, you know, reading or hearing or the conversation now. But I do have an understanding of sort of the meta trends that are Mm -hmm. driving us. The meta trends are a massive globalization, right? What used to define your citizenship would be the language you speak, the currency you use, where you live, where you work. And these things are becoming less and less important, right? Your currency is, you got the euro going on, but what's going on in the background in a very powerful 
for us right now isn't Bitcoin per se, it's blockchain mm -hmm. technology, mm -hmm. which is going to be changing ownership and ownership globally. You own something, whether you're in Kenya or London or New York, and you can pass it across borders without taxation, without any translation of currency things are owned on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to change our understanding of currency. Currency will start to have less and less value. In fact, as we are demonetizing the world, heading eventually towards healthcare is free, education is free, energy tends towards free, transportation becomes minimally towards the cost of energy, money has less and less value. Translation language, interestingly enough, you know, we are seeing a lot of technology. Google Translate today can translate between 100 languages. There are hearing aids that can do instantaneous translation. So I think about the babblefish yeah. from A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy being something we're going to start to see predominantly over the next, mm -hmm. you know, five, 10 years. This device here is the beginning of it, but as this becomes sort of implanted, as we start to get nanobots in our brain, language will be immaterial. So what language you speak won't matter probably inside of 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then where you live and where you work with the explosion of VR and AR, virtual reality in particular, you know, you can live in Mykonos and vibrantly work in a virtual mm -hmm. existence. Mm -hmm. And then that gets me thinking about, I may have a citizenship, but I may have more of a allegiance to a virtual country that I'm part of than anything else, mm -hmm. right? I may be part of the abundance communities where I have my real allegiance or the singular university communities where I have my real allegiance because that's the people I hang out with, I talk with, I have most in common with. The fact that someone is born in the same country and has the same religion or the same language may mean far less in the future mm -hmm. compared to people who've got the same mindset that I have. Well, the thing that you have to differentiate, Peter, is that there's what I call the cutting edge and the trailing edge, and you're in the cutting edge. <laughs> okay. And I think you're uniquely in the cutting edge because not only are you exploring these things, but you're conceptualizing them for a lot of other people. There's a lot of people who are experiencing the cutting edge life that you're talking about, but they don't have your ability to conceptualize it for other people. So you're not only a practitioner and a, an experimenter, but you're also an explainer to other people. Then there's the trailing edge, and the trailing edge are people who these transitions are going to be very painful. And the reason is because they don't have a conceptual framework for experiencing them. One of the big problems that the Brexit thing brought out is that the people who were telling the story about Britain, independent Britain, had a much better story to tell because they could relate to actual experiences everybody had. Right. And nobody on the Remain side could say anything substantial about the European Union that was actually part of people's experience. And if you can't communicate with people's experience, your argument is going to be very lame. And that's what they found. I watched about 10 of the debates on the YouTube, the full debates. I mean, the British, if they're nothing else, are great debaters. <laughs> they go to Oxford, they go to Cambridge, and these people really, really know how to carry on a debate. And what I noticed was, you know, there's a rule 
in debating. It's called Godwin's Law, which is very interesting. And it's Godwin's Law is that the first person in a debate to use the word Hitler or Nazi loses the debate. <laughs> in other words, you're calling the other side Nazis or you're saying you're like Hitler. And the Remain group were the first ones to go to Godwin's Law. They started, to, well, these Nazis that you have out here, you're like Hitler and everything else. And so I always am very alert to the first person to break Godwin's Law because it means you've run out of arguments and now you're going to scare tactics, you know. But I think you're going to have probably a 20 to 25-year pushback, Peter, where it goes in the opposite direction on the local level. Mm-hmm. I think this is going to show up in the U.S. election this year. There's a lot of themes of displacement in the United States, employment displacement and everything else. And it's a better story to tell than the ethereal great things to come story. So this is where politics really differs from And the reason is that the trailing edge has incredibly more voters than the leading edge. That's true. Yeah. So you're in a minority. I'm probably in a minority, although I'm an American. You know, I've lived outside of the United States for 45 years. And people ask me, what are you? And I said, I'm an American. And they said, yeah, but you've lived in Canada. I said, I've lived in Toronto for 25 years, but my basic instincts are American and I really relate to it. So I have this very, very powerful sense of identity with the U.S., and I will for the rest of my life. I mean, it's not something that's going to exchange. I enjoy all the other things that you're talking about, but it doesn't affect my basic identity. Until blockchain becomes the major vehicle, probably the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency on the planet. And uh, until the translation becomes uniform, English is probably the number one language. I agree and feel very blessed to be living in America and speaking English, right? We got the lucky deal, Peter. I mean, (laughs) plus we're going to outlive everybody. So that's... (laughs) Let me close my thoughts as we wrap up this session on the following. We've pretty much conquered this planet Mm -hmm. and there are very few places you can go now. And I think the number is near zero to go start a new country. Mm -hmm. You can't go and start a new government, a new mechanism of living, and our ability to experiment is very different than it used to be two, 300 years ago. You could go and sort of conquer a piece Mm -hmm. of land and plant the flag and and do the American experiment. And, you know, hard to believe America's only 240 years old. And when I talk about a multi-hundred-year lifespan, it gives me, relative, you know, Mm -hmm. talking about America being a 240-year-old country puts that in perspective. Mm -hmm. Different point, past conversation. But over the next 20 or 30 years, we are going to have two things occurring that are going to be interesting. One is, I do believe Elon is going to make a run at Mars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his uh, expectations are in the next decade to do the first human missions to Mars. He wants to send the first Red Dragon spacecraft to the Martian surface in two years' time. So we're going to have a chance to, what are going to be the rules, right? Because one of the biggest problems with the the United States is that we set the rules of governance a couple hundred years ago, and it's really hard to change. Yeah. So we can now have, given technology, a direct democracy. We can put a requirement that rules have sunset clauses on them, laws have sunset clauses on them. 
But the second thing that's going to be going on as well is I do believe we're going to create virtual communities. Hmm. And those virtual communities that I will live in a virtual reality and sort of a second life version uh, in the future can write its own rules, its own regulations. So we're going to have the ability to experiment with new forms of government Hmm. in the virtual world and physically on other planets. So that's going to be fun over the next couple of decades. Yeah, but the interesting thing, Peter, is that you're actually responsible for one of the rules that's probably going to be on Mars. <laughs> What's that? And that is property ownership. Remember the asteroid law? The fact that if you landed on an asteroid, that you own the property on the asteroid? That was your deal, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Our rules from the laws passed in November this past year with planetary resources. The government movement Absolutely. on that, that there's property rules. So, Dan, as we wrap up this session on Brexit, we do live in the most extraordinary times, pal. Always a pleasure. See you soon. Yes. Have a great day, pal. Thank you, Peter.